Um, I was just going to say, Judas, do you want to get George and Susie in on this and and welcome them and, yes. and tell them what's what's going on here? Yes, people have kind of been coming and going because that's how our groups are. So um, George and Susie, introduce your fake selves, <laughs> your fake names, and uh, tell us your shelf item. Yeah, this is for this is for our our podcast, and so we're we're just going off of what what broke your shelf, what shelf items you had, or what ultimately oh. broke your shelf. Okay. By the way, real quick, daughter's leaving. This is our daughter, um, Janie, fake name, and uh, <laughs> yeah. Anyway, she knows everything now. We shared with her about a week ago. Yeah. She was so excited. <laughs> Oh my gosh, wait, we have to get her take on it before she goes because she is a younger person and we need their point of view. And You're 18? 19. 19. 19. Okay, she's 19. <laughs> <laughs> she's number four. She's on like 25, 26, you know. <laughs> she's, just uh, shy, she's just shy of 15 years old. <laughs> when we told her, it was, it was seriously about a week ago, it was sort of like, are you kidding? No, wait, really? Seriously? And yeah, I mean, I had already not been going to church for like seven months. But you were telling us and you still knew the church was true. Is that because of COVID that you hadn't been going to church, or like, what is your status? So that and I got a job, and I was working on Sundays, and then I was just always not home, and I just stopped going, and I didn't miss it. No, I didn't. And so, what was your reaction when your parents told you they had changed their feelings? At first, I thought they were joking because I was so used to them just being like, oh, church is true. Like, and so like at first I was like, no, like this is not true. Where are my parents? <laughs> um, but then they kept telling me about it. And I was like, wait, are you being serious? Like, you had to follow up with mom a couple of days later. Yeah. Like, are you seriously? <laughs> yeah. She could, she could swallow me maybe after the first conversation. Yeah. She still couldn't process um, Susie. But you're okay with it. Yeah. So a lot of us that have been in the church for years and years and years, we've just feel like the world has been changed. Like the rug has been pulled out from under us. What's it like for an 18 year old? Honestly, it doesn't change much. Like it's just, I'm not going to church. Like I've never really had like friends just in the church. So it's not like, Oh, I can't talk to them about this. It's like, it's still pretty much the same for me. Just so it's not a big deal. It's not like your worldview has yeah. changed. You don't feel any like grief or loss or shock or. No, I feel a little shocked because it's weird having them. Yeah. Not in the church anymore, but. I'm a little bit jealous. I have to say. We should all be so lucky. <laughs> yeah. But her older sister is still having a very hard time accepting this. So it's, you know, we've got, we've got the full range here. Our four kids. How old is the older sister? 24. Yeah. 24. And so had she gone on a mission or been married in the temple? No, she was going to go on a mission. She just graduated from college and she, uh, um, she's been a Relief Society president. She worked in the temple. She was a young woman's like floral president. Yeah, right. She was president all throughout Young Women's and she just really had a hard time accepting it, but she's come around, coming around as well, just um, as long as we go, don't go too fast. So that just leaves our oldest son. <laughs> we'll see how it goes. Talked to her yesterday and she was like, yeah, it's, if I get married in the temple or not, it's kind of whatever. Huge progress. Temples are overrated anyway. 
<laughs> yeah, just a little. Oh, so what was your shelf item and how do you, how did it make you feel and how do you feel now? Do you want me to tell you quick about what converted me in the first place here? Sure. Yeah. Okay. I had the ecstatic religious experience as well when I was 13, reading the Book of Mormon. I just kind of turned things around, I guess you could say, from a young person's perspective, being a you know rowdy kid and things like that. And I decided, you know, I'm not sure I like like how I am right now. I should change. So I started changing. Then I started reading the Book of Mormon and that wasn't even set in seminary yet. I started reading it one day on, uh, on a Sunday. I was laying on my bed reading it and I got this intense, spontaneous, warm feeling in my, you know, the classic burning in the bosom. And it just like spread my whole body everywhere. And I was like, oh my gosh, this meaning the Book of Mormon's true. This must mean the Book of Mormon is true. And then this feeling just intensified. And then I was like, oh wow, so if the Book of Mormon is true, that means that the church is true. Must be. And it was like, and then it just like intensified more. And sort of, and then Joseph Smith's a prophet, and then the current prophet's a prophet, and it went through the same thing. And I was like, okay. And that like was life changing for you know 50 years, 45 years. That that guided you know everything about my. You could say it colored all aspects of my worldview. So fast forward, I had a chronic pain not just an episode, a, uh, you know, prolonged chronic, chronic pain came out of nowhere. And I thought, you know, I'd overused my, my feet. It was the bottoms of my feet, both feet. It was very, very weird. Couldn't get a good explanation on it. Uh, been, went to podiatrists and physical therapists doing everything I was told to do. Nothing helped. Back just got worse. Immobilized it in two air cast boots for, uh, you know, I was in air cast boots for six, eight weeks. I was in a wheelchair at my son's wedding and, and nothing was helping. And I was just spinning my wheels with the doctors and I started getting suicidal. I had had suicidal ideation in the past, but like I started actively planning my suicide. I was just reading something about chronic pain sufferers the other day that the suicide rate for chronic pain sufferers is about double the suicide rate for the rest of the population. So yeah, I've heard that. Yeah, so because a certain body part hurts, you think that that's where the problem is. And it turns out latest research has become really, really solid since about 2005, 2010. It's pointing away from the point of pain to the brain. And that's where chronic pain is generated. And chronic pain is any pain that lasts more than three to 12 months. So what happened, I didn't know all this at the time. That's why I was suicidal. So um I thought, oh, crap, I'm going to be stuck in a wheelchair the rest of my life, you know, and, and I can't walk without pain. But anyway, my dad suggested to me I, I go to the University of Utah, and I just sort of rolled my eyes like hopeless, you know, like I don't know what difference that's going to make. They've tried everything already. And well, I went ahead and did it anyway. I made an appointment with an orthopedist at the University of Utah. I had been this way for six months. For the first time, a doctor ordered an MRI after having been this way for so long. And then I had the follow-up appointment to go over the MRI and the MRI was completely negative. Not a single thing wrong with my feet. And I about fell out of my chair, my wheelchair, I should say. And I had all kinds of tests, you know, for neuropathy. I'd had electrical, what's called the EMG study. I had full blood panels, everything that could possibly, you know, be relevant. And nothing was wrong on any of those things. And the doctor just sits there and he's looking at the screen, he's looking at my MRI and he's Squint. You know, he didn't want to refer me out. They want to handle it themselves. They want to think that they've got the answers and he didn't have the answers. And he just goes, I'm going to refer you to the pain clinic. And I was like, oh, this means 
I'm stuck with this the rest of my life and you're just going to teach me how to deal with my pain. So what happened then was I, uh, I ended up at the pain clinic. They had me at the pain clinic at the University of Utah. This is different. University level pain clinics are different from the pain clinics out in the community. The university level pain clinics know how to address chronic pain and pain clinics out in the community still do not. So they told me that self-help is, a, we're big on self-help here at this clinic. You need to start meditating. And I'm like, what? Okay. You know, I want you to build a meditation toolkit. Oh, oh, by the way, there's three specialties at the pain clinic. The pain doctor, who's an MD, there's a physical therapist, and they do approach physical therapy there differently than physical therapists anywhere else out in the community. And then a pain psychologist. So it was a pain psychologist that told me to start meditating and to build a meditation toolkit. And what that meant for me was I started looking at YouTube videos on meditation and I got a book on it. And, you know, I read about it online, say bookmark them and things like that. So that was my meditation toolkit. I started meditating, learning how to meditate, started meditating. But somewhere along the line, here's what happened. Here's my shelf started breaking when I went, I put two and two together, like we've been talking about with this, these feelings. And I went, wait a minute. If I can have a negative physical sensation that has no valid basis for it, then I wonder if I could have had a positive physical sensation when I was 13 years old with no valid physical basis for it. And I started getting annoyed at some things. Uh, you know, the mover scorm was really gotten under my skin for a long time. So, so, so tired of Saturday morning moves. Movers quorum. I've never heard that before. And, uh, you know, and having my, having my weeds tomatoed and flowered by the young men's and, um, you know, that's when you have tomatoes that are overgrown with, with weeds and they come in and they pull out all the tomatoes and along with all the weeds that's getting your, your weeds tomatoed and flowered. I've had that done several times, you know, the help gets pushed on you and, you know, whether you want it or need it or not and things like that, culture type things about the church just got under my skin and, and, uh, oh, down, they were constantly going on about combining elders quorum and, and the high priest group about how we all need to get on board. And, and I was like, I haven't heard anybody saying that they have a problem with it. Why does everybody keep saying we need to get on board with this? I haven't heard a single person complain about it. You know, just things like that just really started irritating me. So when I put this thing together with pain, negative physical sensations and positive physical sensations, clearly the negative one not having a basis in reality. So maybe the positive one didn't either. Oh, and then another thing happened with the meditation. Things started changing for me emotionally. I was not nearly as high strung or I wouldn't, you know, get as intense or upset, irritated. This person started wondering, is something wrong? And I was like, no, everything's fine. I like, why? And she says, um, well, you seem like you're upset. And I go, no, every, I think everything's fine. The way, what happened was basically <laughs> the way that Judeo-Christianity had been telling me for years, you need to be like this. You need to be meek. You need to be a peacemaker, all these kinds of things. Calm so that you can, you can feel the spirit. There's a Richard G. Scott talk that really got under my skin, you know, where he said like, if you're angry, then you can't feel the spirit. You need to make those feelings go away and so on. Well, the pain psychologist started talking about ideas like um, feelings aren't wrong. And, um, you know, and, and, then, and then, like I say, with, with uh, the meditation stuff, how it spontaneously changed me. So what I'm trying to say is a tool, a technique developed by Eastern philosophy equipped me better to become the type of person that Judeo-Christianity is telling me to be. 
And I just saw the disconnect there and was something's not right here. There's a big piece missing from Judeo-Christianity, from LDS especially. With those ideas, I decided, you know what, maybe it's time to take a relook at my testimony. And so I thought, well, I've got this burning in the bosom thing. There's the, so it's really kind of based on the Book of Mormon. And so I went, well, the thing that I could maybe put my finger on the most, if I had to pick one thing and go, okay, this one thing really, really strengthens, the, gives the, the Book of Mormon the strongest foundation, I guess you could say, it'd be the testimony of three witnesses. So I Googled three witnesses and I didn't go to the church website. I already know all that. There's nothing new there for me. And I ended up at the CES letter. <laughs> I think a lot of people ended up there. Yeah, and I went from CES letter to, to polyandry to Book of Abraham. I mean, the shelf was breaking fast by the time I got to Book of Abraham, and then it really just crashed. And the Kinderhook place was like, oh my gosh, this is ridiculous. So how did you feel when that happened, though? <laughs> when I find out that I've been tricked, you know, that I've been betrayed, I get pissed. So anger was your first emotion. Anger was my first emotion. I also, I had a fair amount of apprehensive and anxiety over how this was going to play out with relationships, but I couldn't stop. You know, I just couldn't, it was too addictive to find out I'd been inside the matrix, to find out that Santa Claus isn't real, to find out that, you know, right. Find out that I've been stuck up in mother Gothel's tower, you know, all these metaphors. It was just too addictive to walk away from it. I, I went to Jeremy Runnell's website. There was a link there to his interview on Mormon stories. So I found out about Mormon stories. And then I found out about Reddit, ex-Mormon, and, you know, and then Radio Free Mormon. And, you know, it's all just piling on. And, and one thing early on with the CES letter about the Adam God doctrine, he's got the links right there in the letter. I'm clicking on the links. And I'm going, yep, right there, church website. There's the polyandry. You know, there's the 14-year-old. There's the Deseret News clipping, the scan clipping of Brigham Young's sermon in the Deseret News from whatever 1870 address in the tabernacle saying Adam is God. This is as authentic looking as you could, somebody would have really had to go out of their way to Photoshop that. And I'm just starting to see a pattern, which is that I'm getting more truth from so-called antis than I am from the church itself. And it kind of flip-flopped there pretty quickly after looking up several references, you know, instead of the, the way the church always gets us to look at anti, anti negative stuff about the church with a really skeptical eye, it flipped. I was going to ask uh, George and Susie. So Jonah asked earlier while we were talking about this, different people learned different things throughout their lives and certain aspects of the church history they didn't know about, kind of like with what you're saying, how you learn these things and it's like, you're discovering, oh, you're, you were in the matrix and, or, you know, just everything is imploding on your worldview for what you thought that were taught to you were true. Because part of the shelf breaking is that, that there are these things that were taught to me that were, you know, demonstrably false. And that's part of the shock value is, oh my God, like these things are absolutely absurd. And I was taught a complete lie. How much do you think, if you would have known these things growing up with them, I mean, it's hard to look back and play, you know, Monday morning quarterback, but right. how much do you think would have factored into your potential decision to leave if you would have grown up with these things, knowing what they are? I think the Kinderhook plates would have, oh, the Book of Abraham. Yeah. 
would, I mean, yeah, the book of Abraham, this explanation that they give you that it's a, just a vehicle for, of translation when yet it says written by his own hand or, you know, the facsimiles are footnoted. Joseph Smith polyandry, that might have been able to be explained. You know, like you say, I, it's hard to say brainwashing is really very, very powerful, extremely powerful. And we're all victims. That's the way I look at it. You know, we're all victims. Nobody's stupid. We're all really smart people, but brainwashing is really, really powerful. But there are certain things that you go like, you just can't explain away these clear and concrete disconnects, say, with the book of Abraham, especially the kindred plates. Uh, so I, I can't explain away Adam God telling me that prophets speak for God and then the doctrine just changes on a dime. So I, it depends on which issues, I guess, to answer your question. Mm -hmm. What I would, if everything had been shared, I like to think. I would have found my way out 20 years earlier. Well, to what with what you're saying, how with the Kinderhook plates, because um, a lot of apologists come back and say, well, the only account that we have of Joseph Smith claiming to start translating that is an entry in William Clayton's journal, where it was uh, inserted into the history of the church coming from Joseph Smith as the first person, which is a pretty common thing if they're you know, trying to put it in, in a first person voice, whether it's third person or whatever, who said what, you know, they try to composite it like that. So if they cast doubt on William Clayton's account that it was actually coming from Joseph Smith Phillips to say that, I mean, that's really their only defense and it's the only, you know, decent defense, but I think it's a laughable defense in and of itself. When they say that, what do you think as it pertains to that? Well, my issue there is that maybe with the kinderhook ones, but you see in a pattern between the kinderhook plates and the book of Abraham, you know, and the treasure digging, I'm seeing a, a pattern of character of, of a person that is just not believable anymore. When it comes down to it, at this point, I go, okay, there is still an outside possibility that it's all true. But at this point, if God expects me to still believe it, despite all this, then God is not merciful and God is not just. And if I get up there to heaven, most people have a take on it that says something like, then he's not a good person. I don't want to be around him. And mine's slightly different, which is he's arbitrary. He's just arbitrary because this isn't based on faith. I, I have a reasonable base, a very, very reasonable basis for not believing at this point. And if you expect me to believe despite all this, then you're not fair. You're not loving. And that means it doesn't really matter what I do. I could, I could leave the church and still make it into the highest level of the celestial kingdom if God's arb that arbitrary. Only if they're calling an election has been made sure. Oh, right, right, right. I was just going to say that if you were taught this from when you were really young, the correct way, I'm sure you'd go along with it until maybe you were a lot older. And I'm sure some people would stay in because we've been taught the other way all along. And that's what we've always believed. So I'm sure if you were always taught that, it wouldn't be that big of a deal. The one thing that would be different is the church would not have picked up nearly as many converts. I agree. We've talked uh, a lot in this group too about different people we've either seen in different groups that we've been a part of or people that have been, you know, neighbors or friends of ours that we've seen where it's almost like the most ardent, scrupulous head down, shoulder to the wheel believers are the ones that once they learn these things, it's the biggest crash versus 
those who are a lot more casual about it where they might you know be wearing tank tops on sunday with a coffee and be like oh yeah it's you know i I go to church once a month or so and it's not a big deal but when you give them these these issues to them it's just like eh it's not a big deal church does a lot of good i'm i'm good with it part of that is because of the casualness of it i think and it's interesting to see that dynamic of how much you invested into it and seeing that investment, you know, come out and play out. Yeah, I see what you're saying. In fact, that happened with my brother. He married a girl who was a convert. Um, his his wife got up and walked out in the middle of the of her own live endowment session. Wow, I've never heard of anyone having the guts to do that. She did, and she went back to the locker room and took her garments off. And temple president met with them had lunch with them and coerced to walk, talked her into calmed her down and got her to go back through and the wedding came off. But all those years, it's been, been kind of hit and miss with them in church. And I chatted with my brother online a couple of weeks ago and he basically said that over time he started to see and realize that inspiration was what it was claimed to be. And then he said, and then he just sort of moved on and he's not angry. I'm angry. My level of investment in the church has been higher than his all these years, I, I think. He said the only calling he would ever accept was in young men's, for example. Uh, so he had his boundaries and I was vulnerable to, you know, whatever they might throw at me, except when I did quit elders quorum presidency at one point, because Bishop wouldn't take my concern seriously about being overloaded. Yeah, we don't, we're, we're taught that we don't have boundaries, that we have to say yes to everything. Right, yes, we do. I got a Calm app subscription and this um, saying, it says, um, the privilege of a lifetime is being who you are. Yeah, one of the things that's really, really made me mad is being deprived of the opportunity to find out who you are for yourself. It, at this point, you know, at my age, who am I really? Who had I been with, with or without the church? And, you know, just that's one of the things that, that I have grief over is being deprived of this self-discovery. I, I have an example. My son, he wanted to join Civil Air Patrol. And where we lived at the time, they were going up on planes and patrolling some of the key bridges on the Potomac River in the Washington, D.C. area. That would have been a fantastic opportunity for him. But because of the church's alignment of the young men's program with scouting, uh, you know, I told him, uh, okay, I want you to have this opportunity. We went to a meeting a civil air patrol meeting to try it out, see how it looked. He was totally excited about it. He wanted to do both, but the schooling there was pretty challenging. And, and I said, you know what? I want you to do this, but let's just wait until you get your Eagle Scout. And I was thinking, you know, okay, he's 12 now. He'll have it by the time he's 14. That'll get him motivated. He didn't get it till he was right before his 18th birthday, and he never got to join the civil air patrol. That's one of the things that I'm pissed off about, you know, is that that's not what he would have chosen to do, to do scouting. He would have been in Civil Air Patrol and he would have been going up on the plane. And that's just something that got taken away from him because of all this. I'm angry about that. Yeah, there's a lot that you can be angry about. They're very valid feelings because they're real and, and there's good reasons for it. Something that has helped me tone down my anger is to understand well, it's really to look for the person that is responsible for all of this or the thing. And it's very hard to grasp, you know, who is directly responsible for 
these missed opportunities and all, all this harm that's been done to me in my life and the things that I've been prohibited from doing that maybe I would have enjoyed. And finding a person or persons who's directly responsible for that is difficult because the church is more than just the prophet. He's more than it's more than just the the first presidency and the quorum of the twelve and state presidents in the seventies. It's an ethereal thing. It's hard to pin down uh, someone to blame is, is the point I'm doing. And the other thing that helped me is to realize that even if you find a particular person or persons, I can look at them and see how they are victims as well. All of them, from the prophet on down to the sunbeam, all of them are victims in some way or another of being indoctrinated and manipulated by something that was beyond their control because none of the original founders of the church are alive. Everything has been handed down through generations to us. So thinking of others, even the the people we really dislike in the leadership of the church who say harmful things, they can be thought of as victims. And that helps me some. Well, I appreciate I, that. I don't know if I buy, I see what you're saying and I agree with it all, though I don't agree, I'm not sure I agree with top church leaders, you know, like the guy who cuts out the 1832 version of the first vision, Joseph Fielding Smith cut out out of Joseph Smith's letter book and hid it in his safe. And so I, I, by the time they get up that high, that they know all the stuff. And I think they've made a conscious and deliberate decision to disregard the truth and to withhold it from others. They're by depriving them of their opportunity to make a choice for themselves. But I, I don't disagree with what you're saying about it's so broad, the, the uh, how you say it, the perpetrators, it's such a broad thing. And that's what my, that's my Santa Claus metaphor. It's almost impossible for a kid to figure out that Santa Claus isn't real. You've got movies, you've got books, you've got songs, you've got traditions, you've got action figures, you know, you name it. It's almost impossible for a kid to figure it out. And so uh, that's the way I see it, kind of where I went with that, you know, all that being sort of ethereal. It's, it's kind of on that same scale, that level. It's, it's almost incredible that anybody makes it out of church. Well, I felt like that too. I compared it to finding out that Santa Claus wasn't real. And the biggest comparison was that you can't then go back and believe it again. Like once you find out it's false, you can't. I don't know how people can go back and gain a testimony again. I've, I've heard stories, but yeah, unseeing what you've seen, I, I don't, I don't see how that's even possible. I know what you're saying to yourself. Should have took the blue pill. <laughs>